Welcome to PwC's Next in Health podcast. I'm Ben Isger, leader of PwC's Health Research Institute. And today we have Trina Tadaros with us, who leads HRI's Regulatory Center. Welcome, Trina. Thanks, Ben. Great to be here. Well, thanks for joining. We've got a action-packed agenda today, a few issues on where we are with the pandemic and some new issues out of the CDC and the FDA. But also today, we're going to pivot a little bit and start talking about some non-pandemic issues, especially around policy and what we might expect post-election. But with that, let's start, though, with what's happening with the pandemic. And I know you are a student of medical history, and so you're always great great at bringing up some parallels to previous pandemics and where we are now under the issue of field hospitals. So Trina, take it away. Yeah, yeah. So here we are. We're in the end of October. And I think everyone is aware that we see a really significant rise in cases across the country. Hospitalizations are rising across the country. And sadly, we're seeing deaths rise, which is not surprising. That that always follows a, a surge in hospitalizations. And so what we are also seeing that we really haven't seen since the spring in the United States is the reopening of field hospitals. We just saw a field hospital open up and admit its first patient outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is experiencing a really significant surge and has been for quite a few weeks. We're also seeing this starting to happen in Europe, in Poland. There's a there's a great picture in, I think, the New York Times showing a field hospital opening up in Warsaw, Poland. And this is nothing new. If you look back, even back to the cholera epidemics that occurred in the United States in the 19th century, they were opening up field hospitals then. And the CDC actually has some great photographs of field hospitals opening in 1918 influenza pandemic. And I think the most remarkable thing is that they look very similar to the ones being opened up today. Of course, our medical technology is more advanced, but you just have these wide open spaces and sort of cordoned off places for people to be cared for. And the look and feel is just so similar. Repurposed large buildings being used as as impromptu hospitals to care for an overflow of patients. And so we're seeing that starting to happen in the United States again this fall, and, and I expect we'll we'll see some more of that over the coming months. Well, one thing we try to do for our listeners is not just talk about some of the stark and, and negative news, which there's plenty of that, but also positive news. And there was two interesting studies that came out recently around hospitalized patients and really how they're faring now versus earlier in the pandemic. Could you give us a little bit about some of that good news. Yeah, yeah. It's always nice to talk about some good news. And so just like you said, Ben, there are two studies that recently came out, one looking at a hospital system in the United States and one looking at it from the UK's point of view. So looking at a series of hospitalizations in the UK for COVID and both found a decrease in mortality for hospitalized patients with COVID-19 over a period of time. In other words, as time went on, hospitalized patients were less likely to die of COVID-19. And I'll just focus a little bit more on the one that was based in the United States. This one looked at about 4,700 hospitalizations between March 1st and June 20th of this year. And they looked at the outcomes for those hospitalizations as of sort of the middle of July. And what they found was that unadjusted mortality dropped for each period that they looked at from 30% in the first two weeks so in the beginning of March 
to 3% in the last two weeks, with the last eight weeks being lower than the 95% control limits. And what this means is that they found that even if you adjusted for changes in demographics, so changes in who is being hospitalized and the severity of illness, so how sick they were when they were admitted, that did not account for all of the decrease in unadjusted mortality. In other words, something else was at play that made people less likely to die over the period of time as time went on. And the researchers surmise that it could be a combination of factors. It could be increasing clinical experience. So the physicians and nurses and everybody else that were caring for these patients just got better at it more experienced, decreasing hospital volume, they were less busy, growing use of new pharmacologic treatments, so trying and and figuring out how to use whatever treatments were available, non-pharmacologic treatments like proning, so they began to move people onto their belly who were having trouble breathing, and that might have played a part. Earlier intervention, community awareness, lower viral load exposure from increased mask wearing, and social distancing. So those are some of the factors that they are hypothesizing are at play in helping lower the mortality rate over that period of time. And I think this is good news for us as we move into this fall-winter surge that many communities are experiencing. The only one that I think is a little bit worrisome is if decreasing hospital volume had a lot to do with it, and we don't know, then the increased busyness that some hospitals are experiencing right now could work against that. That if we get to a situation again where hospitals are overwhelmed, then this mortality rate drop might be counter counteracted. But we don't really know what it wasn't most likely. It sounds like it would be a combination of these factors. Researchers will eventually tease out, you know, what played the most part. Well, I think the hopeful part about what you just explained, Trina, is around the health system itself and clinicians and hospital and health system leaders and and others in the health ecosystem really working to share best practices and to improve treatments. And I think that can give everyone some hope that as time goes on as a health system, we get better at treatments. But it's really not completely up to the health system alone. There's a lot of things that we need to do as individuals and as a community and society. And one of those things is around distancing and the CDC has some new guidance out, correct? Yeah, yeah. So the CDC changed the definition of a close contact recently. And what they say now is that it had been that if you were within six feet of an infected person for 15 minutes or more, now they're saying that a close contact is someone who is within six feet of an infected person for a cumulative total of 15 minutes or more over a 24-hour period, starting from two days before illness onset. And so what this means is that they're saying saying that if you are sort of intermittently around someone who is ill with COVID-19 or infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus for a cumulative total of 15 minutes over a 24-hour period, then that means that you are a close contact of that person and should take all the measures that's necessary being a close contact, meaning quarantining, getting tested, things like that. 
I think really interesting is that the CDC notes that the determination of close contact should generally be made irrespective of whether the contact was wearing respiratory PPE, i.e. a mask. At this time, differential determination of close contact for those using fabric face coverings is not recommended. In other words, they're saying it doesn't really matter if either person was wearing a mask because they don't know if that's actually protective enough to sort of make a difference about the cumulative total of 15 minutes or more. And this is partially based, according to a story in the Washington Post, on a situation in a prison that involved a guard and an infected person. And it was basically found that it wasn't that the guard had been around the infected person for 15 minutes at a period of time within six feet. It was a cumulative exposure over 24 hours that led to the infection in the guard. And so this could have some repercussions or implications for schools, for workplaces. You could imagine it could make a difference for people who work in restaurants. And so we'll see how this definition change sort of gets absorbed by our economy and by the way things are run. But I think it's interesting and it's worth thinking about all of us when we're out and about that it could be a cumulative total that makes a difference, not just that. That 15 minutes at a stretch or more. Well, I think the interesting thing about that is I think once again, it shows that as we get more information, we can have better guidance. I think it's one of the reasons why this weekly update is, is so important for our listeners because there's always new information coming out. Another area where we have some new information is last week, the FDA has a committee, the Vaccines and Related Biologic Products Advisory Committee. I know that's a mouthful. And they met last week. Now, often we give a little asterisk on this show that it's science for non-science majors. But I thought, Trina, just at maybe the highest level, do you want to let folks know or listeners know what was that committee talking about and what kind of information typically comes out of that committee? Yeah, yeah. So these advisory committees are composed of academic and medical experts, also industry representatives, although they are non-voting, and consumer representatives. And they're used by the FDA to provide advice on specific drug applications and also broader topics where the agency has questions or concerns or uncertainties. And it's important to remember that the discussion, the advice, and the votes of this committee are all just recommendations. The agency is not not required to follow the advice of the advisory committee. So the advisory committee can vote down on something and the FDA can decide the opposite. And that's completely allowed and happens. On Thursday of last week, on October 22nd, the FDA held the VRBAC meeting, the Vaccines and Related Biologics Products Advisory Committee meeting, to ask the panel its advice on its draft guidance for COVID-19 vaccines. So they were really wondering whether it was balanced, took the right approach to benefit risk, all the that, whether ongoing studies could maintain the blind, so ongoing studies of the vaccines, if a vaccine received an emergency use authorization, and also they wanted some advice on additional post-market studies after a vaccine receives an EUA. And so this verback included epidemiologists, pediatric vaccine experts, infectious disease vaccine experts, statisticians from the CDC, academic medical center representatives, universities. So at a real high level level, the Verbach and the FDA and the CDC talked about 
the distribution plan for a vaccine once it received an EUA. And I think one interesting thing is that the CDC said that it would issue vaccine cards to individuals at their first shot to ensure that the individual gets the correct vaccine booster if it's a vaccine that needs a booster. And so that might help remind people and also help them keep straight which vaccine they got. The other thing that the FDA and the CDC talked about, especially the CDC talked about, was that it's going to work with pharmacies, retail pharmacies, and community pharmacies to help distribute and vaccinate individuals. They see that as sort of a skeleton or a backbone for a distribution and vaccination campaign. So I think that was very interesting. The panel talked about how they feel a little bit more confidence in the entire process after hearing from the FDA in particular. And so I think that is a good thing, a positive thing especially when earlier in the day they had heard from a group of experts talking about the rise in vaccine skepticism and people's worries and concerns about the vaccine and its safety overall. And so I think that a vote of confidence from the Verbac could be a good thing once an EUA comes out. And so several members of the Verbac said that they felt more confident after hearing the FDA talk about their plans to evaluate any application. So a slight majority of the panel seemed to feel that two months of safety data wasn't enough. And they seemed to be coalescing, some coalescing around four months of safety data. And also, they would like to see more consistency on the primary endpoint for the trials and demographic enrollment benchmarks. This does not mean that they are set to turn down or or vote against an application that has two months of safety data. I think it really depends on what those data show. But there was some thought that they would like to see more than two months. And that's what the FDA has put in its guidance. So we'll see how that all plays out. So that's what the Verbac meeting consisted of. Everyone was hotly awaiting it with so much interest in the COVID-19 vaccine development program. And so we'll see. I think the next really interesting meeting will be when an application is put forward. And that could happen, you know, in the next month or so. Another thing that's happening very shortly is the presidential election. And Do you want to talk a little bit about that and thinking beyond the election, Ben? Yeah, I know. It's a great point, Trina. I know we focused a lot on our various podcast episodes on the pandemic, but of course, there's something else that's been ticking off day by day in the background, and that are the days to the election. And really, we're just days away from that. And we're going to be providing a lot of analysis after election day on the new presidential health plan. But there's a few things we can talk about now that they're kind of those issues that are regardless of who wins the White House or Congress. What are those policy issues that are going to be in play kind of looking beyond Election Day? So a couple I'll just lay out here and we'll, over time, we'll cover these more in depth. But one big issue to look for, what's going to happen around coverage? So partly because of the pandemic, partly because of the economic condition around it, we've had many, many Americans who have lost their employer health coverage and other types of health coverage. And so regardless of who wins the White House next year, there'll have to be some focus on how do we create more coverage and get more people into the health system. So that's number one. Keep that on your list. Another one that I think to keep on your list, regardless of who wins the White House, is around virtual health. And really as an accelerator from the pandemic, we've seen almost 17 million Americans use virtual health visits for the very first time. We 
expect that is going to continue, Trina, into the new year, again, regardless of who wins the election. And it does bring up the question, though, around regulatory flexibility. When we were in the spring, a lot of regulations around clinical licensing, how physicians and nurses can treat people across state lines virtually, a lot of those regulations were actually put on hold to create more flexibility because of the acute need to have virtual health access. So number two on the list post-election, definitely keep virtual health on the run sheet. Another one is around pricing and costs, and it sometimes touches into value-based care. So the health system is often unaffordable for individuals and companies, and we expect to see a continued focus on things like price transparency and drug pricing and value-based care. And of course, many of these issues are actually bipartisan, at least at the highest level, often the devil's in the details, but the concepts for sure are bipartisan. And so certainly keep that on the list as something to watch out for post-election, regardless of who wins. And then one last one I'll just put on the run sheet, and that's around wellness and prevention. And although it's been something that's been a part of our health system and talked about for a long time, we really think it's become especially acute because of the pandemic. Those with underlying health conditions are often more susceptible to COVID-19. And it does bring up the question in terms of the U.S. and our overall health as a community, as a people, and what do we need to do about that? And in fact, the investment in that kind of moving more upstream away from the hospital emergency room, away from the clinic, and actually into the primary care office and wellness and prevention measures. The spend on that is often a great investment because it keeps people healthier long-term and ultimately reduces costs. So that's just a little taste of some of the things that you all can expect that we will be covering more in-depth, and certainly we'll have a full report that will come after the election. So with that, Trina, I want to thank you for everything that you have updated us on today. You started us out with what's happening with the pandemic in the U.S. and the opening of field hospitals. Some good news around how hospitalized patients are doing better now, generally, than they were at the beginning of the pandemic. And then some great updates on two agencies, the CDC and their definition of close contact and the FDA's newest meeting on what's happening with vaccine development. And then, of course, a bit on what to expect after the election. So for any deeper information you want, we have it all available for you at pwc.com forward slash HRI. And thank you for joining us with Next in Health. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.